No digging here. I beg your pardon? No digging here. What do you mean, no digging here? I have permission from the landlord. No. Well, if you want to stand about all day, that's your affair. Here's a Japanese sandman Sneaking on with a duel Just an old second Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're looking at M.R. James's classic English ghost story, A Warning to the Curious. Before we get into all those good warnings, however, what is going on? Well, I'd like to refer people to the Ain't Slayed Nobody podcast, a podcast on which they're doing actual play of Down Darker Trails. That's a relatively new show just launched this year and they'll have i think when this goes out there'll be a couple of episodes available so that's highly recommended um speaking of podcasts our good friend evan dorkin and paul yelovich have been carrying on with their excellent tear them apart podcast this is the horror film podcast they've been doing for oh it must be about 10 episodes now and they recently did an episode in which they recommended a film called one cut of the dead which is this very strange Japanese film, which I'm reluctant to say too much about because I don't want to spoil what's wonderful about it. But on the face of it, at least initially, it seems to be a found footage zombie film, so that's two big black marks against it, that is shot in a single take. But there is so much more to it. Dear God, is there so much more. And yeah, they analysed it beautifully on the podcast. But I'd recommend, yeah, if you get a chance, see it. It's on Shudder, certainly worldwide, and you may be able to find it in other places. But yeah, watch that film, listen to their podcast about it. It's amazing. There's almost hope to think that you might like Blair Witch Project then if oh, you found, suddenly that. found a found footage film that you like. No, 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 no. <laughs> Let's go back a long way now, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> there are reasons why I like this, and none of those reasons apply to Blair Witch. And another podcast I'd give a shout-out for is Voluminous. The oh, yes. one from HPLHS, the HP Lovecraft Historical Society, are taking letters written by HP Lovecraft and making an episode out of them. And nobody could do a better job than those guys of this. They really know their subject, and they really bring it to life. Yeah, I highly recommend that. And now on to our main topic, a warning to the curious. Let's start off by talking a little bit about M.R. James, who wrote this story, who is, I'd say, one of the giants of the horror field in general, but particularly, probably, the defining ghost story writer. M.R., or Montague Rhodes James, uh, born August 1st, 1862, and died on 12th of June, 1936, uh, was an English academic and writer. He served at various times as Provost of King's College, Cambridge, uh, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Cambridge, and last position which he held right the way up until his death, which was Provost of Eton College. So by the time he writes this story in 1925, he's 63 years old, an age that Lovecraft would never get to see, but I don't know how that's relevant. But yeah, it's notable that he's an academic of some repute, an antiquarian, a medieval scholar and theologian, and published a number of academic works. It's interesting comparing him to Lovecraft because, I mean, there are an awful lot of similarities, I'd say, in their work, in the approach they took and they had 
a lot of protagonists who were almost author inserts, particularly antiquarians, academics, single men. Their characters tended to be ciphers, and they would go along and uncover ancient evils and quite often be destroyed by them. But in terms of their backgrounds, I mean, they were very, very different. Lovecraft was almost entirely an autodidact, but M.R. James had one of the best educations around. And it's no surprise that M.R. James is taken very seriously, perhaps in academic circles, given that he was the vice chancellor of Cambridge University and so on. Yeah, he does seem to be taken an awful lot more seriously in literary academia than, say, Lovecraft is. And I wonder if that's because he was also writing, you know, what might be viewed as more kind of traditional ghost tales and so on, whereas Lovecraft was a bit more like pulp fiction. Yeah, there was certainly more respectability in the way they were published. They weren't published in pulp magazines. Mm. They were published in various periodicals, but they were collected into book form within his lifetime, which again, that didn't apply to Lovecraft. So Lovecraft's works really had to earn its status. Yeah, and I think there's something more genteel about James's work as well. James was very vocal about the fact that he wrote these stories purely as entertainments. In fact, to begin with, most of them were written to be read aloud to his friends and colleagues at King's College. He'd gather them together on Christmas Eve and go for the traditional ghost story at Christmas approach. they sit around the fire together and he would read them this latest entertainment he'd whipped up. I mean, sure enough, they were written up as stories and published in book form. But most of them were designed to be read aloud. Well, wasn't the term he applied to his work a pleasing terror or yes. something like that? Yeah. Because yeah. that's kind of weird as well, right? It's like they're all still there on Christmas Eve mm. in King's College. So I guess some of the dons would live in the college. And I guess maybe, sadly, they didn't have any other home to go to. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, James himself was unmarried. He never married in his lifetime. I see that like he probably married posthumously, but you never know. <laughs> um, Stranger things have happened beyond the veil. Uh, yes. Right. So, yeah, I mean, he probably was still around the college at that yeah. time. Yeah. Kind of like Hogwarts at Christmas, you know, <laughs> just just a few lone souls. What do they call him, the house ghosts? Yeah, yeah. there he is. That's who he was reading them to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Edless Nick and all them. His work was collected into four volumes during his lifetime. There have been many compendium editions that have been put out. I don't think his work has been out of print since then. There is a real enduring appeal to his work. I, what do you think has kept his <laughs> spirit alive for all this time? I think it's almost uniqueness that there's really nothing quite like him. That there is very much a Jamesian style that he's taken and run with as his own. That he's carved his own little niche and that it is it's almost timeless in a way. Yeah, it's just unique. That's what I think is what it makes it a standout feature and its unique selling point. And those ghost stories, it's kind of like an easy sell. They're ghost stories... A lot of people like creepy ghost stories. It's notable that, yeah, we grew up with them being produced on the BBC mm. as ghost stories, dramatizations of M.R. James's fiction around the kind of Christmas period. They'd put one out. Well, that was a big thing in the late 60s, early 70s. And that's probably a big part of why he's still popular to this day. That, yeah, I mean, there was that production that was done in 1968, which predated the ghost story at Christmas thing of Oh, Whistling, I'll Come to You, My Lad, mm-hmm. which was done by Jonathan Miller. 
And that proved to be so successful. It was part of the Omnibus series. And that proved to be so successful that the BBC then launched this annual series of A Ghost Story at Christmas. And that went on for seven or eight years. And the first five of those were all M.R. James stories. There were Stalls of Barchester, Warning to the Curious, The Ash Tree, Lonely Hearts. I thought then they jumped on to doing The Signalman, the Dickens it, they were in order. The Stores of Barchester, A Warning to the Curious, Lost Hearts, The Treasure of Abbot Thomas, ah, and the, the Ash Tree. Yeah, I forgot Treasure of Abbot Thomas, which is yeah. still pretty good. And the series has been resurrected at various stages. There was a production of A View from a Hill in 2005. Uh, there was a rather bizarre version of uh, Whistling I'll Come to You that was done in 2010, mm-hmm. which yeah made the whole thing about Alzheimer's, which was really weird. And then in recent years, Mark Gatiss has resurrected the whole thing. He's done two productions so far. He did the Tractate Mid-Off in 2013. And then just a few months ago, there was a production of Martin's Close. There's also Number 13 got done just after View from the Hill as well. But I think a big part of his enduring appeal, like you say, there is something timeless about him. He sort of represents the English ghost story tradition. But at the same time, he completely revamped it. His ghosts are not the more genteel spectres of Victorian times. His storytelling style is very gentle and builds details of of niceness slowly building up to some kind of big revelation or horror at the end. The ghosts in them are very much not Victorian ghosts. They tend to be quite tangible things. They tend to be quite brutal things. Sometimes they even seem to be almost like Lovecraftian entities with Mm. with tentacles and slimy and... uh, you know, I, was, I, was just think, I was just thinking the ash tree with all the spiders. Yeah. That's a love letter to Atlak Nachar, if ever there was one. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he's a very odd combination of that respect. It's very easy to see him as being sort of traditional ghost stories, but he's not. I mean, he, what he did, it was really quite subversive. So James opens with a word painting of Seabra, a town on the coast of East Anglia. Aldborough. <coughs> Where is it, Matt? Aldborough. Aldborough. Okay. A place that James visited quite a few times, right? Yeah, he yeah. had family ties there. His maternal grandmother came from there. He spent a lot of his childhood there and he visited there later in life. It's a rustic and windswept place, surrounded by fir trees and sand dunes. And in this manner, he sets out the locations that will be important to the story, including a Martello Tower. Now, what is a Martello Tower, we ask? It's a round, short, stumpy thing that's on the coast. Yeah, they were designed as fortifications against Napoleon. Mm -hmm. They're these, like you say, flat towers that were designed to have artillery cannons put on them and were there as as lines of defence. Defending England against the foreigners? Exactly. Kind of appropriate, really, given the context. It really (laughs) is. So we have this very vivid picture. James even makes an aside in here about the fact that he is going into a lot of detail about describing this place. Is there anything we can learn as GMs or game writers about the way he builds up this sense of place and about how he uses location? As GM, I'd say edit it back a bit because <laughs> it goes on a bit. It does. Mm. Yeah. But on the other hand, he does at this point set out every key location that's going to play into the story. He describes the hotel. He describes the beaches, the, the sand dunes, the hillocks, the fir trees, the sea, mm. the Martello Tower. And all of these things come into play. 
It works in the sense that he's describing it up front so he doesn't slow down the narrative later. Hmm. To that extent, it works. But yeah, I agree with Paul. It's The beginning is a bit ploddish. It takes a little while to get through it. But also there's the fact that he did base it very much on a real place, this place that he knew, mm. to the extent where you know scholars have been able to go out there since then, identify these various locations. Apparently, Alderborough has changed an awful lot since then, but it was very recognisably Alderborough in the way that he described it. When you're coming up with locations for a scenario, or when you're describing locations, is that the kind of thing you do? Do, do you tend to use a real place and riff on it? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll sometimes like use a real place because it's just easier to bring to mind in my head. So if I'm familiar with the place, then that makes it easier. If I'm setting it somewhere in particular, let's say Providence, for example, then I'll try to make it as accurate to the place as possible. But if it's somewhere completely fictional, it doesn't matter where it's set, then I don't care. Yeah, I think what James does here with using a real place as a basis for it does add that degree of verisimilitude. I mean, it certainly makes it feel much more like a real location. James then tells us, or rather, our unnamed narrator. Well, no, I think it's important to say that at this stage it is James, because if you think of this as a story being read aloud to his friends, yeah, his he friend is saying devices, yeah. and he uses this a lot in his stories. So mm-hmm. I think, yeah, this is James telling the audience this before he launches into a different narrative. So James tells us of this unnamed friend who in turn told him the story that we are about to hear. And he does make it very much sound like it is being sat there and he is talking to you. There's some very informal parts like, oh, I've still got this word painting to do, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, you can almost hear it being said. The narrator used to holiday at the Bear Hotel in Seabra in the off-season, probably because it's much cheaper then, with his friend Long, who has since died. Hmm. That reminds me of a very Lovecraftian opening. I thought it was curious that he makes quite a point of Long has died. I mean, are we to take that he's died because of the fate of the events in this story? Yeah. Or is it just coincidence? Because I don't really... <laughs> Maybe. Well, is it though? Because is that flagged in the story later? I don't think it is. No, I took it as complete coincidence. Yeah, Yeah. but it seems weird to make that point that he's since died. Maybe just a bit of intrigue or, I don't know, an oddment, it seemed to me. Well, it sort of sets up the expectation that something bad is going to happen to Long. And then, as we'll see, we'll get to the end of the story and Long is still alive at the end of it. But it sort of sets the narrator up, James, as like the sole custodian of the story i suppose well except for the person who told it to him well at the end the narrative we're about to see isn't from james this is something that was told to him by someone else yes okay oh okay yeah one day in april 19 as michael horton uh, says when he reads it so i I listened on youtube and there's a marvelous reading by michael horton who we shall link to in the show notes because if you want to hear this story then how better to hear it i can only think of him as gandalf from the bbc lord of the rings uh, recordings (laughs) from the early 80s but yeah he kind of mumbles the 19 something because he puts april one nine dash dash in the text which is a kind of curious thing to do well i mean that's not unknown no i mean this does happen quite a lot in victorian fiction and this was obviously a bit later than that but you find in older stories an awful lot of stuff that's redacted like that not just dates but names of places names of people and there are a variety of reasons for this i mean part of it may be verisimilitude because a lot of them would perhaps try to wait the style of pamphlets where stuff like that was redacted to avoid libel sometimes it's i I guess to build a sense of mystery about the place and so on now with this I was reading around it and listened to the fantastic uh, a podcast, The Curious, which is a, a podcast about NMR James. And one thing that they seized upon 
is the fact that while this story was written in 1925, the first draft of it very explicitly sets the story as taking place in 1917, during the First World War. And there are a lot of elements of this, as we'll discover, that very much perhaps tie in with wartime concerns. James apparently was quite uncomfortable about the idea of capitalising upon the war. He saw his stories as pure entertainments and didn't necessarily want to have that association. So I think what happened is that he actually went through and redacted that date deliberately to try to remove the wartime association. Well, I find it a bit annoying as a reader because I'm thinking, well, when is this set? Is this Mm. set? I've got a vague idea when Amar James was alive, but is he setting this in his lifetime? Is he setting it later? Would there be cars? You know, it's like, it's not really helping me yeah. as a reader. For me, it kind of hark back to Poe, because I know that he used mm. to uh, do this a lot. And it's not the only story that James does it in either. He redacts dates and place names in uh, the stores of Barchester, and also names in the Treasure of Abbot Thomas. So it's a device that he's employed more than once. Um, but to what effect? I don't really... It may, it, again, it goes back to my point of making it almost timeless, that it's not pinned down to any mm. one particular point, that it's just of an yeah, age. But, it, but it's 20th century, and 20th century covers a lot of different periods well not that much of the time he wrote this but still no but who's to say it's written in his time i mean it could be say 1980 or you know it's 19 dash dash i looked at it in that there's a few hints you can get to a rough era it mentions about william ager only having recently died in the last few years during the war and then it's that's kind of tied both points together it's that he's only died fairly recently and that also he died during the war because of his prolonged exploits going out into the wilderness out in the cold to do what he does as we'll get to later you could pin that then as being um, it's sometime in the early 20s perhaps anyway he says during one such trip a young man wanders into their private sitting room asking if he can join them this man Paxton is nervous and asks the two men for advice. He starts explaining his predicament, and this is how the story begins to unfold. Yeah, so we at this stage have like three levels of nested narrative. So we've got James sitting by the fireside telling us this story that a friend told him. Then we get the friend's description of what happens, and now the friend is passing it over to Paxton, who's coming along sort of saying, here's what happened to me. This isn't a kind of nested structure I've seen in many stories, and yeah, I don't think it's actually a particularly friendly way of writing it. It's, it's no. not friendly, but that number three is pretty damn significant. Mm, oh, yeah. While visiting a church in the nearby town of Froston earlier in the week, Paxton noted the coat of arms of East Anglia on the porch. The sexton told him of a legend of three crowns buried to protect the shores from invaders. A priest then joined the conversation and elaborated. There has always been a belief in these parts, in the three holy crowns. The old people say they were buried in different places near the coast to keep off the Danes, or the French, or the Germans. And they say that one of the three was dug up a long time ago, and another has disappeared by the encroaching of the sea, and one's still left doing its work, keeping off invaders. So basically, it's a metaphor for Brexit. Yeah. Well, it is, I think, probably a wartime metaphor. Again, yeah, I don't think James necessarily would have been able to divorce himself from that, given when he wrote this and the effect the war had on him. So this idea of protecting Britain from the forces of of Europe was actually 
you know, really quite timely. From what in my research I've done, um, it is an obscure myth, but it's still out there as potentially dating back to when the first crown was dug up in Rendlesham. Let's talk about this myth then. The myth of the three crowns protecting England was entirely invented by M.R. James. It has been repeated since then by a number of people as a myth. There are locals, apparently, who every now and then trot it out as a myth now. But James invented this. This myth did not exist before then. Oh. Uh, the, the three crowns are very much an emblem that is used on the East Anglian flag. But there are all sorts of possible reasons for this. It could actually be something that came over from Sweden at some stage, because the Swedish flag has those. It could represent the fact that there were three kingdoms that came together to form East Anglia. But this whole thing of the three crowns protecting the coast, no, James made that up. Oh. I've got one of the books I did research for for a particular scenario a while back. Um, I'll have to check what the publication date of it was and then see see if that falls afterwards. <laughs> or oh, sorry, his version of the Necronomicon. <laughs> is it real? Is it not? <laughs> the priest mentioned that the local Aja family considered themselves the guardians of the last crown. Generations of Aja men watched over the last burial site, especially during times of war. The last of them, William Aja, died from consumption recently at a young age. The priest speculated that spending all night standing watch can't have helped. Now, I do wonder, is it Aja or Aga? It's, yeah. it's pronounced Aga in the BBC adaptation. Yeah, Horden pronounced it Aja. Yeah, and I listened to a reading by David Suchet, who also pronounces it Aja. So, uh, the academics on a podcast to the curious refer to it as Aga. So take like your pick. Them. Yeah, I like Aga. Yeah. yeah, I think Aga. All of this piqued Paxton's interest, and he was moved to go and look for the crown. This, however, proved quite difficult because he didn't really have anything to go on until he had a lucky break and stumbled across a curiosity shop which was selling this old book that turned out to be the prayer book that was owned by the Ager family and had all their names written in the flyleaf and a little bit of poetry. Mm -hmm. And he discussed all this with the shopman, and the shopman mentioned that William Ager lived in a cottage up on the north field. So it's one of the bits I love in the BBC adaptation of this is the shopkeeper. He's mm. such a character. <laughs> yes. he, you, you want to steal him wholesale as a Call of Cthulhu NPC <laughs> just because of how fucking creepy he is. And has a skeleton for sale that was dug up yeah. Yeah, nearby. It's like... How is that for sale in his shop? It's yeah. not a museum. I mean, it's not like a skeleton that you'd see in uh, a doctor's surgery or no. an anatomist's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, th this is a shriveled thing that is covered in clay that is just you know, yeah. th there curled up as if it died the most horrible of deaths. <laughs> Nobody Talk mentions it. Oh, they, they do. He asks about it, doesn't he? But yeah. Yeah, cause he goes on that saying about how got burying virgins under the bridges to make them safe. Uh, yeah. How he goes about London Bridge. Yeah. Well, is it, yeah. I mean, that uh, he mentions as well that they did sometimes do it at churches as well, mm -hmm. which is this whole idea of church grims, uh, which is a bit of folklore, British folklore. The idea that you'd, more often than not, you'd actually do this with a dog. Uh, you get a live dog and you put it onto the cornerstone of the church as you were laying the first stones Ooh. and bury it alive. And sometimes, supposedly, according to legend, you do it with people. 
And this would become the guardian spirit. And this is one of the origins of the black dog myth, these you know, sort of sinister dogs that wander the British countryside. I was just about to say a black shuck because it's a uh, not too far from there, the, mm. the legend in Bungay, mm. where the story is that on this thunderous night where they were still praying in the church, the black dog runs down the central aisle, kills two people and then runs out, while at the same time another church in a different part of East Anglia has the dog run through the corner of the tower and brings the whole tower down. But on the whole, I mean, these spirits were supposed to protect places, protect bridges, protect churches. Oh, pathways, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, God help you if you stepped off the path, depending on which variant of the legend you listen to. Paxton followed this one clue and met a woman who now lived at the cottage. She now told him that Aga spent his nights out on a nearby hill, which she then pointed out. Paxton returned that night and dug up the crown surreptitiously. He refers to it almost as if it's a barrow. That yeah. He has experience opening such things and that he's able to go in and do it fairly quickly. Well, he says he's assisted by the fact that there was a rabbit warren underneath and he, yes. he sort of follows that and that makes the digging easier. All of this is quite odd in that you've got this idea in the story that the crown is something that is protected, it's protected by spirits and so on. But at the same time, he just has this incredible run of coincidences of luck that almost drive him towards the crown and finding it. Mm. Evidently, rabbits are not the crown's friend. Well, he's described as being rabbity himself, Paxton is. Mm. There you go. Our narrator, now back in control of the story, tells how Paxton then offers to show the crown to him and Long. As they walk to Paxton's room, they see the boots in the corridor, although the narrator now questions this in retrospect. Now, he's not talking about some shoes on the floor outside somebody's mm. room. He's talking about the boots, and this is a person. And it's not even, it's not a proper noun. It's not capitalised B, it's just mm. the boots. What's the deal with that? It's, it's like the handyman at the hotel, the, the odd job man, not quite as, not quite a glorified concierge, but the but, guy who runs a place that's almost there to do the odd jobs that the guests want him to. That's not actually the origin of the term, though. Boots refers to a very particular job, which you used to see in hotels. In fact, even in my youth, I remember this. I don't think it happened so much anymore. This idea that if you went to a hotel, you'd leave your shoes or boots outside the bedroom door at night. And they clean them. And they'd come along, pick them up, yeah, clean them, and perhaps even repair them overnight, and then return them to you the following Well, that's what I wondered, but it's like I've never heard that person referred to as the boots, though. No. Seems a weird turn of phrase. Yeah, I don't know if it's a local thing, but I did actually look it up specifically Mm. for this, and that apparently is a term for that job. Yeah. And again, you see him doing that in the... BBC adaptation towards mm. the end where he sits out mm. on the uh, steps outside and is cleaning cleaning boots. He also seems to take on a few other roles in the story of doing odd jobs. Oh, yes. Paxton then takes the crown from his suitcase, which is all wrapped up in handkerchiefs. He unwraps it and he shows it to the narrator and Long, warning them not to touch it because, well, I guess we'll find out what happens when you touch it. The narrator is really excited to see the crown and dismayed when Paxton announces that he has to return it. He mentions at some point the crown that had been dug up at Rendlesham was melted down before anyone even had a chance to to sketch it. Mm -hmm. So for an antiquarian like our narrator, this is like a dream come true. He is seeing this artefact that no one ever had the hope of seeing. The way he describes it as being sort of this this old, roughly fashioned thing. Mm. Yeah, it's, it feels really quite, well, real. Since taking the crown, Paxton feels like he has been followed. He has seen a figure out of the corner of his eye. Other people keep looking behind him as if someone was following him. Even the guard on the train opened his carriage door for someone who wasn't there. 
Paxton believes this is a ghost which has the power over the eyes of those who observe it. Worse, it seems to have the power to manifest physically, albeit too weakly to take the crown back. Every time Paxton returns to his room, the old age of prayer book is propped open with his straight razor, displaying the page with the family names. He does not believe he will ever be forgiven for his transgression, even if he returns the crown. That's weird for me, given how the story ends, because if I'm thinking this in game terms, he's charging up magic points so he can do his one fatal blast much later in the story that he can't do bugger all apart from lift a straight razor up until this point. just seems weird that, say, he's just building up, building up, and then finally, pow! Mm. But it takes him a while. Yeah. This sort of ties in with what we were discussing in the Ghost Story episode, where James doesn't like discussing the mechanics of what's going on, when these things behave in weird ways and inexplicable ways. And if we start looking for patterns, if we start looking for the rules of this, then I think it's only fair that we get confounded, Mm. because as soon as we understand it, it's not quite as scary. Long and the narrator agree to help Paxton return the crown, and they leave the hotel under the cover of night, making excuses to the staff. On their way to the hill, they all feel they are being watched. We went up the road to the church and turned in at the churchyard gate. I confessed, having thought that there might be some lying there who might be conscious of our business. But if it was so... They were also conscious that one who was on their side, so to say, had us under surveillance, and we saw no sign of them. But under observation we felt we were, as I have never felt it at another time. That's really quite creepy. So they make their way to the bound, and there Paxton digs it up rapidly, digs the sand up with his bare hands, just scratching them and making them bleed. He gets down to where he found the crown and buries it there again, and they leave. But as they leave, Long comments to Paxton that he's left his coat behind on the bound, and Paxton tells him in a flat voice that he is not. And then later, when the men finally return to the hotel... A member of staff, in fact I think it's the Boots, comments that he thought he saw someone following them. No digging! No digging here! (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's inspired some uh, other people to make works of that name yeah in the uh, the bbc adaptation that's quite happens quite early on doesn't it we see the figure digging for the crown and this figure in uh, kind of dark scene. robes yelling that out at them to warn them off to not take the crown and then getting a hatchet and like <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a bill hook that he yeah. uses and then this is william ager that we see in that adaptation before he dies unlike the james version i mean he's obviously gone around murdering people during his lifetime so we're seeing james James presenting his ghost in sort of little glimpses and perhaps things that are easy to shrug off. In terms of narrating creepy stuff like this uh, to players when we're GMing a game, what can we learn from this? What can we steal? It does remind me, especially with that bit of the coat, that it's where he turns around and says, oh, you've left your coat on the mound. In the story, he describes it as this just dark shadow over the hole. In the adaptation, it's a bit more blatant that Mm. no, Aegir is stood on the top of the fucking mound. It does remind me a bit of the Babadook. Mm. Um, in the sense of the coat and the hat hung up on the uh, hung oh, yeah. up on the wall, you're making something fairly innocuous suddenly appear against something a lot more monstrous or a lot more sinister. It's almost like you're making paradelia kind of work against itself. That because we assume that we're projecting human forms onto things like coats hanging up or bits of shrubbery or rocks or whatever. Mm. 
then, you know, it's very easy to sort of say, all right, yeah, it's just my mind imagining things. And in this case, James is sort of saying, yeah, all these times that you just convince yourself that's what's happened. What if it's not? Mm-hmm. What if it's something that plays around with your with your senses? And I think that works differently in film and on the page written and in gaming. Cause, mm. You know, like you said, they changed it in the TV adaptation, Max. You can imagine them looking back at night at a dark shape on the mound. It's kind of going to be hard to do that on TV, Well, they had, to, li- they had to light the mound from behind to actually show the outline. Yeah. Well, hence they just yeah. had a figure there. Otherwise, they'd, they'd show that. And it, as a viewer, you might not pick up on that. Whereas in the fiction, they can look back and he can say he sees a dark shape. And then, you know, he says, mentioned it. And then the guy says, no, I've got my coat on my arm here. Whereas in a game, if you do that, how do you kind of call that out and then have one of the players say, oh, no, actually, it's my coat on my... I've got my coat. You know, it's... Oh, it's I, I, I do stuff like that the whole time. And I do it in exactly that way. Sort of, you know, mentioned to one player character, if I were running the scene, oh, yeah, you look back and you see Paxton's left his coat on the mound. And, you know, the player might say something or, you know, might say, I'll go and get it or whatever. And then I'll just mention almost immediately afterwards to whoever's playing Paxton, oh, you've got your coat, by the way. Right. I mean, that's you doing all of it, though. But Mm. it's hard to get the players to react in that way as the characters do in the story, I think. My experience is people do tend to get creeped out when you do stuff like that. No, no. Sorry, you missed my point. You're you're doing it. You're narrating all of it. Mm which is like it being narrated on a page. But because the player hasn't actually got their coat on their arm, so the player's not going to say, oh, no, wait a minute, that's not my coat. I've got my coat on my arm. You can narrate it as GM, but it's harder to get the players to instigate that, I think. I think it'll work great in a LARP, mainly for, again, how the Mm. BBC adaptation handles it. Because Paxton doesn't reply at all. He just stares at, in that case, it's Dr. Black, the character with him, just stares at him with this case of, what the fuck are you talking about, look, when he's wearing the coat directly in front of him. And it's then that he looks back and there's that moment of, oh, crap. I think taking away the dialogue there actually helps to emphasise the creepiness of the moment. Well, Mm. actually, I quite like the way the dialogue's handled in this, because James talks about how Paxton replies with a very flat effect. He's not freaked out by it. He says it almost in a monotone, no, I, I have my coat. And that, to me, conveys the fact that he is resigned to what's going to happen. He knows that this thing is following him. He knows that he's doomed. And it's sort of, yes, yes, I know the ghost is there. I know it's going to kill me. What are you going to do? The following day, Paxton is in brighter spirits. Hey, he's really happy with the fact he's going to die. Having had his first good night's sleep in ages. Long and the narrator invite him to play golf, but he declines like any sensible human being should do. <laughs> um, they agree to go for a walk together in the afternoon instead. When the men go to meet Paxton, a member of staff says that he saw Paxton leave a few minutes earlier when they called him from outside. The two men see Paxton on the beach, running at speed, waving as if to someone ahead and vanishing into the mist. As they follow, they notice his footprints are not the only ones in the sand. And there were tracks on the sand, as of someone running who wore shoes. And there were other tracks made before those. For the shoes sometimes trodden them and interfered with them, of someone not in shoes. Oh, of course, it's only my word you've got to take for all this. Long's dead. We'd no time or means to make sketches or take casts, and the next tide washed everything away. All we could do was notice these marks as we hurried on. But there they were over and over again, and we had no doubt whatever that what we saw was the track of a bare foot, 
and one that showed more bones than flesh. As you say, not this insubstantial presence, this more gooey corpse. Well, and also it's the fact that Paxton is running towards it. So we've got almost a return to this idea that he can play tricks on the eyes and perceptions. James describes Paxton as waving his stick and calling out as if to Long and our narrator. Mm. So he obviously believes that that's who he's trying to catch up with. The ghost is basically tricking him into running to it like a trap, running to his death. As they finally catch up near the Martello Tower, they hear a breathless, lungless laugh and find Paxton's lifeless body. His mouth was full of sand and stones and his teeth and jaws were broken to bits. That's fucking brutal, isn't it? Mm. You've got this ghost that has just smashed his face in. The narrator talks about how he could only look at it briefly and had to look away. This isn't what we expect in a ghost story, is it? This kind of brutal caving in of his face. He finally charged up and was able to move more than a razor blade. Also saying his mouth was full of sand and stones. It sounds like his body has had the sea washing over it and washing Mm. sand and stones into it. And then like the corpse has been left there after the sea's gone out almost to me. That's the picture I get. Buried and exhumed. Yeah, yeah. Like the crown. But clearly that the sea hasn't come in and gone out again since Mm. this occurred. But that seems to be the effect. But if we think about this in gaming terms how we present a ghost like that. We've mentioned a few times how James's ghosts are very physical presences, and this is one of the most physical of them all, the fact that it has murdered someone just through brute force. We perhaps are more used to seeing ghost stories in which people are frightened to death or, or tricked into accidents, but this is someone who has been brutally murdered by the dead. How might we present that in a game, and what are the implications of that? Well, I think as we discussed in the ghost episode, each ghost is unique to the story, perhaps. If you're going to use a ghost, there's a default one in the Call of Cthulhu rulebook, but you're kind of encouraged to to tailor it as you wish. So if you were running this, then clearly that's what's been done. But if it's a physical threat, how would you deal with that in the game? That's a really quite tricky thing. And it occurs to me the closest parallel in Call of Cthulhu to this ghost is probably a Hound of Tindalos. Because you have something that latches onto its prey, is chasing after it, Mm. trying to trap it, and it's fundamentally unkillable. It will just keep going at you. It's never stated directly in this, but William Ager, or Ager, is dead. It's not like anyone here is going to be able to kill him again. I mean, even if they did roll up with Tommy guns and dynamite, what's that going to do against the dead man? Probably just make him more resolved to try and take you down. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So you can't fight this, it's going to come for you, so it is just inevitable death. That's really quite a tricky thing to portray in a game. It's the same problem I have with using, say, something like a Hound of Tindalos, which is, you know, fundamentally presenting that in a way that gives the players any agency is quite tricky. I mean, mm. all they can do is just play out the chase until they die. Is that something you'd you'd ever do in a game, that kind of thing? I wouldn't use a Hound to that effect, because that's just not fun. I'm still trying to find a way to make uh, use of a hound that is fun, but that method of just uh, plodding along, know where this is going to go, is just drawing out the inevitable and just is not the kind of game I want to play. I think the term game implies there are multiple outcomes that might happen, and Mm. that doesn't have to be the case in fiction. The two are different things, and I don't think 
you know, question whether this would work in a game. The only person I've seen ever do something like that is you, Paul, and you wrote a scenario set on board a sailing ship where at a number of points there are basically instructions to the GM that this person will die in this way and it's inescapable. Mm. You can play out a sort of round-by-round thing of their death. <laughs> but yeah, all right. But they're, they're, not, they're yeah. not going to get out of it. Like I say, it's not going to work in a game, is it? <laughs> I, I have fond memories of having one of the most shortest-lived PCs of my entire gaming career, which was pick up a new NPC off the sheet. Oh, I'm in the crow's nest. Right, I'll jump. Splat! Next. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, I guess if you're going to have that kind of effect in a game, then you've got to consider how you run the game. Because that particular scenario is structured very differently to any others that I've written or run. As far as the inevitability of the character's death there, you seem to have presented a way there to actually make it work in a game. So I guess with something like this, or, you know, the Hounds of Tindalos or whatever, where you had this inevitable death closing in on a character, I suppose as a player, there might be fun to be had in it in terms of playing out the desperation, the attempts to flee. There is something, I think, quite fun in Call of Cthulhu and other horror games about playing the victim, about trying to have this spectacular, horrible death. It's kind of anti-pulp, because I was thinking about this. With pulp, if you turn up to max, it's like I can, I'm can. i fighting something on the top of a roof Well, I can just run and jump off and probably survive, even if it's like 10 stories. So I'm almost unkillable if I've got enough luck. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this, it's almost the reverse. <laughs> yes. It's almost inevitable that I'm going to die. And even if I lock the doors, turn the lights out and... Don't go out. I'm still gonna die. You know, there's it's the opposite of like jumping off the roof. You know, so so it's the almost the diametric opposite, it seems. Well, I remember I, I've not played it yet, but you told me about the experience of playing Ten Candles. Yeah. And there's an echo of that here, isn't there? There that is. You start yeah. off knowing that your character is going to die horribly, and it's a question of building up to the events of that. Yeah. So there's a kind of countdown mechanism with the ten candles, and as the last one goes out, then the last characters are meeting their doom. So something like that could work with this, yeah. There's no reason why you'd need a special mechanic for it. I have played another game, it wasn't Call of Cthulhu, where I just said to the players in the first place, your characters are not going to get out of this alive, we're going to play to destruction, go. Happily, the caretaker of the tower has witnessed their arrival, able to absolve them of any suspicion of involvement in Paxton's death. How convenient. How that would have been nice to have a, oh, crap, we were seen as the last people nearby, they're going to hang us now, convicted for murder, but no, convenient NPC place there. That that is another variant of ghost story you could do, of ghosts fucking with people by just framing them for murders. (laughs) Yeah, because who the hell is going to believe a ghost did that? Precisely. You see, that would have been a much better ending. Later at the inquest, the two men keep quiet about the crown or any supernatural occurrences, just saying that Paxton believed he was in danger from a man named William Ager. No one had any knowledge, fortunately, of any William Ager living in the district. The evidence of the man at the Martello Tower freed us from all suspicion. All that could be done was to return a verdict of willful murder by some person or persons unknown. Paxton was so totally without connections that all the inquiries that were subsequently made ended in a no thoroughfare. And I have never been at Seaborough or even near it since. And that is a really grim, bleak ending. And a lot of Evan James's stories have bad endings, but there's a, normally a sense of 
I don't know, macabre black humour or not quite glee, but certainly irony or there's some playfulness, even when his stories are very dark. I'm not saying they're comedic, but I'm saying that there's a more, or rather a less bleak tone. I mean, this, I'd say, is probably the most nihilistic thing that he wrote. Mm. I'll say that the endings for things like Stalls of Barchester and Number 13, they're still pretty bleak. I mean, they're bleak in that, yes, they result in death and bad things happening. This story is very much about inevitability, about the inescapability of death. I don't know, there's something about the tone of it that I think is much darker than James in general. I also don't think it's one of his best stories. It's one of his best-known ones, and it's a very iconic story. It's one of the most iconic and familiar in its storytelling style ghost stories Hmm. that he wrote. But in terms of the way the ghost is portrayed, in terms of the strangeness of the whole thing, the imagination, the the depth of detail, I think he wrote much better. Because without the readings and the BBC adaptation... I think I'd have been a bit nonplussed. I don't know if I've read it before and like, yeah, okay. I think this is a story with hidden depths. And certainly by the time I'd read it three times and read analyses of it and so on and saw, you know, potentially the connections to the war and the way that it used landscape and creative myths, there's a lot of really good stuff here. But as a ghost story, it's pretty mundane. Mm. I still like it. I'm not saying it's a bad story, but in terms of the other kinds of ghost stories that James wrote, this is, I'd say, the most predictable, sort of safest one he wrote in Mm. terms of the ideas and the way it's presented. And in a lot of ways, it rehashes Oh, Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, Mm. which he wrote some years earlier. Yeah, digging up the flute and so on, the whistle. It's not quite a retelling of that, but it's pretty close at times. Mm. But, I mean, it's still, a, I, I think, a very powerful story, just not his best. Now we have a look at some adaptations and derivative works from A Warning to the Curious. So in 1972, as we've referenced, there was the BBC adaptation by Lawrence Gordon Clark. Uh, this was part of their annual series of Ghost Stories for Christmas. What more could you want? <laughs> and starred the wonderful Peter Vaughan as Paxton and Clive Swift as Dr. Black. Yeah, the narrative structure was quite different with this Mm. because it didn't have those nested degrees of narrative. It was much more Paxton is the protagonist and you have this Dr. Black character who had previously appeared in the stores of Barchester who comes along as the stand-in for the narrator and Long. Yeah, both of them together and again shares that potentially awkward fate at the end. Well, yeah, Um. I mean, that's something that's very different about the adaptation, which is you have a repeat of that scene where the guard on the train opens the door for someone who isn't there to get into the carriage where now Dr. Black is sitting there, sort of indicating that he has now come into the sights of William Ager. Yeah, I thought it was a nice touch. Mm. Yeah, and Funnily enough, isn't in the next adaptations either. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No digging here. <clears throat> A short film written and directed by Adam Scoville of the uh, Chili Scale. (laughs) (laughs) Author of folk horror 
Hours Dreadful and Things Strange. Yes, that book was one of the big bits of research that I used when we did the folk horror episode. Yeah, I remember the name, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's a fantastic book if you've got any interest in folk horror. So, yeah, this film is on YouTube. I'll link to it from the show notes. It's, I think, three minutes long. It's Oh, gosh, as short as that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's not an adaptation per se. It's like reading, not even readings, but a summation of the events of it told over these really atmospheric shots of the landscape. Uh, of East Anglia. And, yeah, it's really quite creepy. Right. Can imagine in three minutes it's, guy turns up, finds Crown, gets scared, puts Crown back, dies. Well, no, it's told in the first person, uh, like a set of remembrances of this horrible thing that happened, or is is happening. There's the Three Crowns by the Triple Tree from Ghosts. This is an album that came out several years back. It's a concept album, sort of, of songs, each one inspired by an M.R. James story, retelling the stories as folk songs. Well, I say folk songs, it's done in... I mean, there's lots of production, lots of weird sound effects, uh, and it's a really creepy album. Like, really creepy. You had me up until folk songs. I'm not so much of a fan of folk music. Yeah, it's well, the real horror map. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think you'd be surprised by this one. I mean, there are some, you know, quite strange experimental tracks on it. The version of the Ash Tree, for example, is just really weird. Hmm. I'd say it's possibly the creepiest album I've ever what heard. What I'd like to hear is a version of, you know, similar to that, but done by the Wurzels. Yes. <laughs> that'd be the, that'd be awesome. Yes. Okay. Well, you, why don't you write off to the surviving Wurzels and suggest that? Yes. You can almost hear the very heavily accented. No, you can hear. I got a good combination. I can't take it over that hill there. No, we're going to that damn crown. <laughs> and then there's the Lost Crown, a video game from 2008 in the yeah. dim and distant past. <laughs> I've not played this, but I did take a look at it online because I'd heard about it in passing. And, yeah, it is a sort of first-person adventure game that uses elements of uh, Warning to the Curious. I think it's set in Seabro or somewhere around there. And, yeah, looks quite atmospheric. I may have to give it a go at some stage. And then, finally, there's a scenario called An Amaranthine Desire. Do we know anything about that at all? Yeah, I've heard. <laughs> have you, have you of heard dick. of that, Matt? Uh, it brings a bell. Uh, do you want to in tell fact, us? Yeah, in fact, it does ring a bell. Oh. In a, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so this appeared in Nameless Horrors. Indeed, uh, yes. A collection of Call of Cthulhu scenarios for 7th edition. It came mm. out a few years back and is still available. Uh, <laughs> and uh, your scenario? I riffed off this, uh, off a warning to the curious, pretty much wholesale by taking the reference to the second crown which had been lost to the encroaching sea. Mm. It doesn't state it explicitly in the story, apart from saying that it was the home of a Saxon king, or at least a, their throne, or where they had had their largest settlement. And I took it to be Dunwich, being on the coast in the same area, and set it around the time when the crown was lost to the ocean. There are academics who've studied this story and made the same association that you know the crown was probably, in James's mind, meant to be at Dunwich. Hmm. Yeah, because it was by far the most, uh, the most obvious of the largest settlements to have been taken by the eroding coastline. And who cares, because it's Dunwich, right? <laughs> Even if it wasn't the association there, we, we can't ignore that coincidence. Dunwich! Well, it's Dunwich, but, you know, it's like Dunwich. It's spelt the same, and that's That's about as close as it gets. Yeah. No no goat-legged boys here. How much more of a Lovecraftian link do you want? (laughs) 
Well, that about wraps up for today. So um, don't be digging in your garden. You never know what you're going to find. Until next time, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Or Aga. <laughs> do, do, do. do. I wasn't <laughs> thinking that. Okay, let's not. <laughs> Push Sandu and get the real crown. horror. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Well, that's going at the end of the podcast. <laughs>